Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The second time I played nicely, it was at Candlelight Pavilion Dinner Theater in Claremont, and uh, my Benny South Street was Steve Glaudini, who's yes. well known to to us and many many in Southern California. And I think we just came back from our days off. The clothes had been gone to the dry cleaners, had been cleaned, you know, and uh, we did our first little bit in in the show. And I, at that point in the show, would grab a banana because nicely, nicely would always be snacking uh, throughout the show. And so at this point, a banana. So I was chewing this banana and then I laughed at something in character and I, I coughed a huge piece of chewed up banana onto Steve's freshly pressed uh, suit <laughs> on his shoulder. Delicious. And I'm, I'm already mortified. And I, he turns and looks and he sees it. And in the loudest stage whisper I think I've ever heard, he yells, get it off. <laughs> And and and, uh, and so I'm scraping it off of his shoulder and putting it in my pocket, you know, not realizing that I have to pull my pockets out in the next number no! and oldest established to show. So that bit went on the wayside. But then also in this number, my microphone fell out of the mic pack in under my, in my pants, and by the time I caught it, it was past my knee. So I spent a good portion of oldest established trying to keep my microphone pack from sliding out the bottom of my pants and finally tucking my microphone pack into my sock. At this point in the run, I had gained a few pounds from when we opened the show. So as I'm doing this, the clasp on my pants burst, just went <laughs> pop. And so I, f I finish Oldest Established and that scene with my mic pack in my sock, banana goo dribbling out of my pocket and off of Steve's shoulder, and myself holding my pants up so they don't fall off. And I get off stage, and I I burst into tears. I'm so it's sorry that, that this was like a stressful experience for you, but I am crying because of laughter. It, it is absolutely <laughs> hilarious now. In the moment, I was like, oh! Oh, I'm so sorry. But Classic. My gosh, live theater. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we're talking guys and dolls with my friend, actor, and famed theater caricaturist. It's Justin Squiggs Robertson. Hi. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well here in my hovel in my, my cubby hole here in New York City. <laughs> Has a New York apartment ever felt smaller no, in your life it's, it's, than it's, during pandemic? It's truly not. I mean, I, I'm partially grateful. I, I have an apartment to myself. My uh, roommate is on the West Coast. Uh, he would, was supposed to be starting a show right now. So, um, oh, wow. So at least I have some room to breathe. Although, you know, it would be nice to, you know, have someone else here to hear me talk instead of 
talking to people on Zoom or or on the phone. <laughs> so <laughs> that that kind of sucks. I'm so sorry. No, it's 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 I, all good. <laughs> I just picture you like naming all of your paintbrushes and <laughs> like cre- creating little dioramas. Well, the dioramas <laughs> is pretty is closer. I haven't quite come to the point where I'm naming my my uh, brushes and pens. Now, for those who might not know, Squigs, as he's kind of known to the theater world, has really become the illustrator or artist for modern Broadway theater, taking over the tradition made famous by Al Hirschfeld. When I first moved to California, that's when I met you and we started doing shows together and you would create these amazing pieces of art based on the show that we had all been doing together for, you know, three months, six weeks, whatever. And it was something that I assume grew out of a place of gratitude and love. But what was your artistic take on it? When I first did my very first show that wasn't a school show, um, it got to closing night and I was like, I want to give a, something to everybody because I've just had such a great time. And, and so I, I had, you know, I had done some drawing obviously before that and really hadn't stopped since I was a kid, but I decided I'll draw the cast and, you know, make copies and give them to everybody on closing night. And I got a, a, a positive response from that. And, uh, and that just kind of started a tradition. So every show that I've done pretty much since then, I've done a closing night sketch. It's obvious uh, that uh, I'm incredibly in love with the work of Al Hirschfeld, who's, you know, he drew for the better part of seven or eight decades for obviously the New York Times, but like TV Guide, uh, hundreds of publications over the years, and uh, is, is really kind of synonymous when you when you think of caricature. I think my particular style has kind of uh, gone more in the direction of the work of Sam Norkin. He's kind of known as, sadly, as, as the other Hirschfeld. His oh. his career paralleled, time-wise, a, a good portion of um, Hirschfeld's career. Uh, and he also worked in black and white line pen, pen and ink artwork. And he, he definitely didn't get the recognition that Hirschfeld did. You know, both were uh, brilliant in their in their own way. And, uh, and obviously, I'm just, you know, Hirschfeld is... He's, he's kind of the you know be all and end all, but um, I've also yeah iconic yeah iconic, and uh, I've been fortunate to build a relationship with the uh, Al Hirschfeld Foundation, and uh, they run an organization that is uh, working a to keep you know Hirschfeld's legacy going, and also building um, educational tools for schools and and in arts and education and that sort of a thing. So. So That's yeah, fantastic. yeah, it's really pretty cool. Kind of have to you know pinch myself too. You know, it's like just chatting with this guy who, you know, spent the last thirteen years I think of of Al's life going through his files while Al worked across the room at his desk, and uh, he's been very very encouraging and uh, very helpful you know to me. So that's really cool. That's so cool. Congratulations. Thanks. What do you see as the importance of caricature in? theater and maybe even more specifically musical theater? Uh, sure. Uh, well, caricature, I mean, it's had a long-standing uh, tradition with uh, theater, I mean, from, you know, ancient times. And and quite quite honestly... Really? Ancient times? Yeah. And, and essentially, it kind of comes from the fact that people are trying to represent popular entertainment uh, in the best way that they could. So for the longest time, caricature or, or portraiture, you know, the illustration of that sort of thing is, was how you would... Uh, portray what you were seeing on stage. You didn't necessarily have cameras way back in the day. But then also uh, an illustration goes through the filter of an artist. You know, it's like you're, you're, you're experiencing something on stage that you can then capture 
put it on paper, you're capturing a moment that will, you know, it's ephemeral that won't exist anymore. And you're trying to capture that, the image, a, but also the feeling, the story, the, you know, cap, trying to capture so much of what's going to disappear after it's done. In theater, we've, I think, all been to a really crappy photo shoot to try and sell our show. <laughs> sure, sure. Where you're like, we'll do this scene, but just do a pose from this scene, and it feels static and embarrassing, and the lighting <laughs> isn't meant for photography, and you just kind of feel like the redheaded stepchild of the art world. Because the truth remains that theater is really difficult to capture because it's meant to be experienced live. Very right? true. Yeah. And so there have been many photographers who have taken beautiful shots of shows, and I and I love them. And also, I think it then is up to artists like you to infuse the energy that that actually exists in the, that space in an artistic way. Sure, that's that's definitely my my goal. When I'm the most successful is when I'm able to draw from knowing what goes into creating a piece of theater, being in the room uh, when people are lear- learning their lines, you know, or, or you know, seeing the design that goes into a show. And I think that whenever I do a, an illustration, it's really trying to capture more than just an image or, you know, pretty pictures of people or it's trying to capture a lot of different things that go into the huge collaboration that is, um, is, you know, theater. Hallelujah. I love that. I love that we're actually talking about guys and dolls because has there ever been a show with more clearly drawn characters? (laughs) And I think that this show is just forever young. No, I, I think so too. It's and it, it's funny because it's definitely of an era, and I, I think what what we're talking about is the finely drawn characters and the and the energy of it. It really comes from the source material, which uh, Damon Runyon and uh, his stories. You know, he was known by critics as someone who puts a funny hat on a hitman. You know, <laughs> you know, he's he's writing about people that aren't you know aren't the you know most upstanding people in the world by any means, but they sure are fun to <laughs> to, to, to watch on stage. You know, exactly. So much of what we consume in our entertainment and culture is directly inspired by Damon Runyon, and I think we have no idea. Anytime that we have this likable character who is a denizen or a gangster or, you know, a, a, a mob guy, but he speaks like a gentleman... Right, <laughs> and it's also it's also one of the one of the layers that's added on to that is is there are a bunch of people who are trying to put on a certain facade. They're trying to appear to be maybe more gentlemanly than they are, so they're doing sure. their best. You know, a couple of Damon Runyon tidbits that I found interesting. Uh, do you know Damon Runyon was was born in Manhattan, but did uh-huh. you know that it's not Manhattan, New York City? Okay, yes, da- Damon, I did. Run- Damon Runyon was born in Manhattan, Kansas. And he didn't. He like discovered New York late in his life, right? I believe so. He came a bit late to to New York, and so he's a, he's a really great example of someone who just kind of came in and like opened his eyes and ears and like got the vibe of what was going on, and then wrote about it. And then also, um, when people want to honor someone or a or an event or something like that, they'll put a name on a like on a stretch of of a street in in their honor. For instance, Forty uh, Fourth Street between Broadway and Eighth Avenue is called I think it's called Rogers and Hammerstein Way because that was where the majority of their musicals opened at the either the St. James or the Broadhurst or the Majestic. But then there's a stretch between 8th Avenue and 9th Avenue right in the heart of Midtown that's called Damon Runyon Way. Um, 
Yeah, which and and then I I found out stories about that particular stretch of street that that 45th Street is the line of demarcation between Upper Midtown and Lower Midtown police precincts. And so, if someone is like, let's say <laughs> let's say in 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 current, you know, situations, if someone is doing a drug deal on one side of the street and the police come and if they can just get to the other side of the street, usually the amount of paperwork that that police officer will have to do to transfer the crime from one precinct to the other. It's just not worth it. Right. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. That's so Damon Runyon. It really is. It's a fun little stretch, but that's Damon Runyon way. (laughs) How cute. Yeah. When I think of modern Damon Runyon representation, I immediately think of My Cousin Vinny, which is one of my favorite movies, (laughs) because Marissa Tomei has a biological clock that's ticking like this. (laughs) And But you got these characters who are hilarious, but also are not entirely honest and you don't care because their hearts are in the right place? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it, it, the ends justify the means sometimes, I guess, um, yeah. when it comes to characters like that. From Runyon's short stories came all of these different characters. Mm-hmm. And the producers, Cy Fuhr and Ernest Martin saw them as possibly being a great musical. And the reason is because of South Pacific. So South Pacific was this huge, huge hit, right? Yeah. And was essentially the story of Nellie Forbush and Emile Beck, who seemed to be from completely different sides of the world and yet fell in love and found a way to be together. And in one of Runyon's stories, The Idol of Miss Sarah Brown, you had kind of a similar dynamic. You had Miss Sarah Brown, who was an evangelical Christian, versus Sky Masterson, who's this uh, ladies' man gangster. What if they fall in love? And so Guys and Dolls was supposed to be more of a musical drama in the way the South Pacific was. So much so that the producers hired Joe Swirling to write the script. And Joe Swirling uh, was a Hollywood guy. He wrote a lot of great old older films, Pride of the Yankees, Lifeboat. I think he even has some uncredited work on Gone with the Wind. And it was in his contract that no matter what happened to the show, his name would always be attached to the script. Mm. But once they realized that this show was not a drama, it needed to be a comedy, they kind of threw out the entire script and hired on Abe Burroughs, who was this very famous comedy writer on radio and then later on television. And he came in and rewrote the script. So, But still, to this day, when you see who Guys and Dolls was written by, it says Joe Swirling and Abe Burroughs. But all of the comedy is thanks to Mr. Burroughs, not thanks to Mr. Gone with the Wind. Wow. Then for the score, the producers hired Frank Lesser. Now, let's do a little dive on Frank Lesser, who I just love. Mm, He, I think, is one of the great composers of the American musical theater. And also one of the most diverse, maybe. Each of his shows sounds very different from the next. Very true. And yet he still has these, these great hallmarks to his work. So he's born in New York to a Jewish family. His father is a classical pianist. It seems that from a very early age, Frank has a great ear for the piano. He loves to sit down and play any tune that he hears. However, he could not be less interested in classical music. 
And so, much to the chagrin of his dad, he decides to go into pop music. Ah, no! So he starts really kind of breaking into the music world as a lyricist. And even though he was in New York, he somehow gets noticed and starts working in Hollywood for films. He writes for like 40 films. It's, in, it's insane how much work he did in Hollywood. Some of his early work as a lyricist includes Heart and Souls, which... Hey, we have a plaid connection. I just put that together. We both did. Yeah. We did plaid together. Both did and, the plaid show, yeah. Uh, but Heart and Soul, I Fell in Love With You is a Frank Lesser lyric. Then, yeah. then World War II happens. He joins the armed forces. And while he's there, he starts writing music and lyrics for morale to get all and of patriotic the, songs. Yeah, and... yeah, exactly. Kind of nationalism. And he writes these two huge hits. Uh, Praise the Lord and Pass the Ammunition, which is quite possibly the most American thing I've ever heard in my life. And then Ooh, also, so. and then also, what do you do in the infantry? You march, march, march. That's one of his songs as well. <laughs> Out of World War II, he then kind of owns his position as both composer and lyricist and writes Baby, It's Cold Outside, which is probably one of the biggest songs ever. It wins an Academy Award because it was actually from a film, I didn't realize. Regarding that song, I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously become a controversial thing, uh, sure. in, you know, in, in recent years, because out of context, it, it's, it's, very, it's a rather predatory song in the era of, you know, the of Me Too movement and just, you know, being a decent human being. But in, <laughs> in context, uh, in context, he wrote it uh, as, as a song that you know you you pull out at a, a dinner party or you know and people would gather around the piano and sing and he would sing the song with his wife Lynn Garland I think was her name You're right. and um so they would do it and it was it was that wink wink nudge nudge thing where they're already married but you know they're it's almost like they're kind of role playing it's like you know don't go away let's canoodle you know kind of a thing right um and so when when he um sold that song I think it was the movie Neptune's Daughter um was, Ooh, it, was in way to pick that um, one out I know. I, I I read it somewhere, um, but she she was she was angry at Frank for uh, for selling their song. So um, yeah, so it was like this is our thing, you know. And then he sold it to the theater, and then he ended up winning, you know, an Academy Award for it. So um, so in yeah. other words, it's not a song meant for a first date. Yeah, well, with specifically written for Frank and Lynn to sing together at dinner parties, you know, uh, and then wow. it just became something else. So yeah, um, but you know, what is it about Frank Lesser and getting ladies drunk because you know Sarah has oh my gosh, a I bunch of those dulce de leches? That. Yeah, oh, so it's yeah. a different era, you know. You, you can't. I mean, 1950 was when Guys and Dolls came out, and you know, well, you know what? There are times. It's always on a weekend. I don't know why, but I suddenly have this impulse to watch I Love Lucy. And oh, so wow. sometimes I'm just in the mood for something like I Love Lucy and I Love Lucy is the only thing that will hit the spot. I don't know if that makes mm-hmm. sense. But oh, totally. They have all of the episodes on Hulu, so I'll just put it on and I've seen like I've seen all of them a gajillion times. But you look at it and I mean, yeah, it's kind of racist. They're constantly making fun of him for being Latino. Uh, mm-hmm. it's a little misogynistic because she's always, you know, this nagging wife and the guys are trying to control them. But then at the same time, right. I have to put myself back in that place. And I think, were there any other Latinos on television? No. So like that was huge sure. representation. 
Were there any Very females true. who owned their own production companies and starred in their own shows? No. So like Very very true. Huge in female empowerment. And I feel the same way about that as I do Guys and Dolls, where man, Guys and Dolls will always be the answer when I want to experience something like Guys and Dolls. <laughs> oh yeah, true. It's it's definitely like it, it it really speaks of its era. Um, you know, it was right there firmly in the middle of the golden age of Broadway, you know, nineteen fifty, boom. It's uh it was still in the era when, you know, the the songs of of a musical would be on the pop you know charts yes. and and be recorded by so many people. I mean, there's so many recordings of uh, "Luck Be a Lady" and you know um, I'll know, you know it's, it, I'll know. Yeah, it's it's one of those handful of shows that really kind of say classic Broadway. Well, also an interesting I Love Lucy and Frank Lesser tie-in. You may know where I'm going with this. There's that episode of I Love Lucy when they have tickets to go see The Most Happy Fella, oh, which is a later right. Frank Lesser musical. So you hear the, the musical going on, but the, the scene takes place in the lobby of the theater. Well, from what I understand, Lucy was an investor in The Most Happy Fella. You're kidding. I didn't know that. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's what I heard. I could I could be pulling that right out of my booty, but I, I'm pretty sure that I heard that she was an investor, and that was one of the reasons that they featured it on the show. You know, it's like in the days of when, when Camelot got an appearance on the Ed Sullivan Theater. It turned ticket sales around. It's like oh, it was wow. doing poorly, and then the next day after the Ed Sullivan show, um, there were lines around the block. So Frank Lesser works with the producers before Guys and Dolls in creating Where's Charlie, which is this hit show Featuring Ray Bolger. Ray Bolger, exactly. And his hit song, Once in Love with Amy. Yes. Uh, so that's what kind of gets him the job for Guys and Dolls. And I think that it's this perfect fit because Frank Lesser is both able to create these really heartfelt, gorgeous melodies and also be the most clever lyricist you've ever heard. You know, like that match of heart and wit is exactly what's found in Damon Runyon's original works. You'll know at a glance by the two pair of pants. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. Right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, I love that I can hear a police siren outside. It feels very New York <laughs> to be talking about guys <laughs> yeah, and dolls. Yeah. It becomes a huge hit. It opens in 1950. It runs for 1,200 performances, which is incredible for that time. Like you said, spawns many hit songs. That original cast album is still so good. Oh, absolutely. I, I actually listened to it just a little bit before we chatted, and I was like, oh, this is this is a really a well-made you know cast album. It really encapsulates that kind of that era. The show continues to be revived over and over throughout Broadway history, including a very famous all-black cast in the seventies. Right. Um, which was very cool. Robert Guillaume. Yes, Robert Guillaume, uh, Ernestine Jackson, Ken Page, who we all love as, of course, Old Deuteronomy, uh, was oh, right. ni- was nicely, nicely. And Oogie Boogie. And Oogie Boogie, of course. Oh, my gosh. Why yeah. wasn't that my first one? Hello. <laughs> I guess the last thing I want to touch on before we actually go through the show is the 1992 Broadway revival, which opened to rave reviews with an all-star cast, including Nathan Lane and Faith Prince, who won the Tony Award, Peter Gallagher, who obviously was uh, famous from TV film, playing Sky Masterson. 
and I think is responsible for the huge uptick in revivals as being colossal hits. Absolutely. I mean, revivals were were huge right around that era. Um, we were coming out of the 80s, you know, which was the British invasion, and we had fewer and fewer American musicals. And then 1992 comes around, and it's Crazy For You, which is, you know, a reworking of Girl Crazy and using Gershwin mm-hmm. music to form a whole new show. And then you've also got Guys and Dolls as in this big, glorious new production and everybody realizes how much they've missed (laughs) these classics yeah yeah and from there on out boy revivals really get hit hard which is both a good thing and maybe uh, a not so good thing but I'd like to think it's more good than bad no, I th- I think so, too. I mean, people are still creating new shows and, and new things to see. But sometimes, again, it's, it's that it's that kind of escapism. It's it's a bit of comfort food. Sometimes mm. that's what theater needs to be is, is comfort food. Um, and then we, we've had a number of revivals that have happened in, in recent years. People are, are kind of experimenting and seeing what else can be said. It's almost like... Um, shows like that are becoming like kind of like Shakespeare where it's like you set it in a different setting and it might say something different. That's fascinating. Um, So it's almost like in the nineties we, we turn to revivals to remind ourselves of our musical theater tradition, our history. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And then, and then now say like post 2010, we're turning to revivals to maybe examine and look at our history and mm-hmm. see what that means for our present. Right, right. It, it, it's kind of like you know, picking up something and dissecting it, and that's maybe what's happening with with some of the some of the revivals these days. Is yeah, is kind of just like de- deconstructing it and putting it back together. You know, th- there will always be people, and I'm partly fallen this category, but you know, sometimes I just want to go in the theater and I s- want to see a show as it was, you know, written and you know, with that glorious you know, orchestration and, and, you know, bright and colorful. But on the other hand too, I love the fact that, that this, the work that we love so much can be put through a different filter and seen as something else, you know? Absolutely. There's a sense of play there that I definitely don't want to destroy just because my preferences may lie somewhere else. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's so true. Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) Great. Let's go through the show. Shall we? Okay. The show begins with this great Runyon Land sequence in which we see all of our archetypes, right? We see mm-hmm. a bustling day in New York City with gamblers and police officers and malls and sailors and boxers and, you know, just every kind of colorful character that you could imagine walking around the city, which then Set gives firmly in Times Square area. Yes, which then gives way to the opening number which is called Fugford Tinhorns. And it's three guys who are looking at who they're betting on at the tracks, right? Right, yep. And we got Nicely Nicely, we got Benny South Street. Like, all these guys have these names that are like are not actual names. It's like they're drag names. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Well, did you know that um, Nicely Nicely Johnson uh, in the original Runyon stories was Nicely Nicely Jones? Oh, 
Yeah, and I'm not sure, other than just maybe the way the cadence lies, yeah, that maybe Johnson is better. You, you needed nicely, one nicely more Jones. syllable. Or one something. more syllable. Nicely, nicely Johnson. The third guy in this little trio about the, the horse races <laughs> is named Rusty Charlie, who I played at Moonlight Amphitheater. <laughs> and you get to start out the show, and then you're never heard from ever again. <laughs> It's true. It's true. I think. Did you come back as like one of the other gamblers in like in in the? Yeah, I was. I was Rusty Charlie slash dancer. Oh, gotcha. Yes, I've you know I think various times I've been in the show. He comes back as like Liver Lips Louie or oh, I I think I also did uh, Joey Biltmore. Like I I did the the phone call. You're the voice. Yeah, yeah. He he shows up because they need a third voice on the trio, and (laughs) and then he goes away. Like no, we don't really need you. Now you've done nicely, nicely three times, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three times, um, twice in 1996, and then once in 2018. So yeah. And do you have any favorite bits or just kind of moments of um, nicely, nicely? I, you mean as far as how it's written or? Yeah, um, just I guess the character. Well, the fact that he's named nicely, nicely, it's clear that he is not one of the most ruthless of the, you know, the underbelly of Times Square. Gotcha. He's really, he's a gopher. He's the message boy for Nathan Detroit. But of course, you know, sit down, you rock in the boat is always, is always fun. You know, yeah. anytime you get to do the 11 o'clock number is, is a treat. And, Seriously. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So out of this fun opening number, we then see Miss Sarah and the Mission Band yes. who, who do one of their like 18 crosses across the stage singing, <laughs> <laughs> singing Follow the Fold, which they, they are this evangelical group trying to save all of these sinners in New York City from going to hell. Right. I have always had the feeling that she's in charge of this particular Save a Soul mission. And then, you know, General Cartwright, uh, who comes in later, is obviously, you know, one of the heads of the of the organization. And, you know, it's thinly veiled being the, you know, Salvation Army, you know, kind of a thing, which has, you know, huge headquarters here in in New York City. Um, It was definitely a part of of the culture back in that that time period. And and what's funny is that Guys and Dolls was kind of like current. I mean, I mean, it was definitely Oh, true. I didn't even think about that. These were the kind of characters that people in the audience at the theater would have recognized from just a a decade before. Right. We next meet Nathan Detroit, who is known in the community for running this illegal floating crap game. For those who don't know craps, you're like roll dice and make bets on whether or not you'll roll a a specific number. You can tell I'm so good at gambling. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't really know craps myself, but whatever it is, it's a, uh, it's gambling and it's illegal, and so in order to make sure that he's able to continue on with this little business, the crap game moves to different locations. It can't be in the same place, or else then the police officer known as Lieutenant Brannigan will shut it down. This leads right. to the song, the oldest established permanent floating crap game in new york which i think is just such a fantastic lyric it's it's really a cool song one of the things that nathan is running into is that in order to move his crap game to the place where he wants to hold it which is at joey biltmore's garage you know kind of like this car shop sort of thing he needs Mm -hmm. to give him a thousand dollar security deposit but he's got no monies so he wants to create a thousand dollar bet Against Sky Masterson, who's a gambler and, uh, you know, a dashing, good-looking, crooning gambler, of course. But he's a gambler (laughs) who's known 
to gamble on anything, right? He can't right. He can't not go for the bet. And so what he decides, what Nathan decides, is that Nathan's going to bet that Sky Masterson has to take a woman of his choice to dinner in Havana, Cuba, right? Or, or I, I don't think even think he specifies the uh, the location. I think he just you know. Oh, was it just to, dinner? I think it was just take a you know take a doll out for a date. My gosh, and, and Cuba and, was Sky Masterson's idea. He's I extra. I think so. He is. Yeah. Extra. He. he he had style. I mean, you know, he he was also known as a, as a guy you don't want to bet with unless you have you know an absolute prize angle on yeah. on a, on a bet. And so Nathan does feel that he has the perfect angle because the girl that he picks is Miss Sarah with the Save a Soul mission, which I mean, obviously, someone like Sky Masterson is never going to get that dame to fall in love with him. So boom, hmm. there's there's this thousand dollars. Everything's going to be fine. Right. But now, then, <laughs> <laughs> but little does he know how uh, smooth Sky Masterson is. What Sky Masterson promises Miss Sarah is that he will provide her with one dozen genuine sinners for <laughs> her mission if she goes to dinner with him. She, of course, says absolutely not that that is not what she's into. In fact, when she does marry a man, he's going to be upright and moral. And then she sings My White Knight. I mean, I'll know. Have you discussed Music Man already on your... Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. It's rumored that Frank Lesser ghost wrote My White Knight. But Frank Lesser, later in his career, he became this mentor to so many up-and-coming Broadway composers like Meredith Wilson. And so his his reach f- is far greater than just his own shows, regardless of whether or not he wrote My White Knight. And you you hear that by the kinds of things that he explores with I'll Know which is a gorgeous song that both Sarah and Sky sing, talking about the way that they'll recognize the person they want to be with. For Sarah, it's someone who's upright and moral, and for Sky, it's chemistry. Yeah, chemistry. Yeah, chemistry. So now we go to this nightclub where Nathan's girlfriend, I mean, she is his fiance, right? They're just not married. They've been engaged for, yeah, 14 years? Is that, yes, is that yes. the deal? Yeah, so they've been engaged. And she's a nightclub performer, kind of a classy stripper. I mean, is she a stripper? I mean, she dances without many clothes on. Yeah, no, exactly. I think there were lines of demarcation, again, in entertainment. And sure. you could be a little a little body, a little naughty, you know, and still be upright entertainment. But I have a feeling that the Hot Box Club is, is not necessarily the classiest of joints. The Hot but, Bucks uh, Club is the musical comedy version of the Kit Kat Club. Yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. So we meet Adelaide in this number, Bushel and Peck, which is, of course, a famous song, and you you learn it when you're a child because it's got mm-hmm. that just fun, almost nursery rhyme quality to it. And we learn after her number when she talks to Nathan that, like you said, they've been together 14 years And what's really funny is that even though she's this kind of brassy nightclub performer, all she wants to do is get married and Mm -hmm. Nathan's holding out on her so much so that it has caused her to have a cold. Like she can't get rid of this darn cold. And uh, And it's it's perplexing enough that she wants to learn why she has this cold. Yeah. Which I think. So she's reading. (laughs) Which is which is another great Damon Runyon slash Frank Lesser marriage in heaven where this quote-unquote dumb blonde is reading medical textbooks to figure (laughs) out 
her romantic problems. You know, it's just, it's so smart <laughs> and fun. And it's called Adelaide's Lament. Talking about characters that shouldn't be reading, Sky uses uh, scripture passages to show Sarah that he knows what he's talking about as far as the Bible goes. And he right. talks about that passage in, in Isaiah. And and his explanation is that, you know, what's been in every hotel room across the country, Sky Masterson and the Gideon Bible. So it's like Adelaide <laughs> reading medical textbooks about her... Um, you know, her uh, situation, and then Sky being stuck in hotel rooms reading the Bible. Yeah. That's so true. Good point. Okay, so now we got like these... Oh, is this when we find out that Adelaide's been lying to her mother? Yeah, she's been lying to her mother and says essentially that Na- she and Nathan were married years ago and, and then eventually had a child and then another child and then more children. And I think six kids or something yes. like that. It's like they have five and, kids and, with one on the way. Yeah, f- yeah, five kids with one on the way. And so <laughs> it's like it shows just how maybe not forward thinking Adelaide is because eventually <laughs> mom's gonna you know want to visit. Yeah. So so, so Nathan, Nathan's like, how am I gonna explain all these kids? She's also told her that he's an assistant manager at an AMP, which mm-hmm. he's like, how do I provide for this family with this job? You didn't even make me the manager? <laughs> oh, it's so great. Out of Adelaide's Lament, because we have Adelaide and Nathan and Sarah and Skye, Nicely Nicely and Benny Soustry appear to talk about how it seems like nowadays... If there's anything happening in someone's life, it's usually because of romantic drama. Yeah, the song Guys and Dolls. Yeah, and, and you know, it's essentially the, the whole scope of things with uh, with dealing with, with dolls. You know, it's going to mess up your life and, uh, and that sort of thing. So, yeah. This almost feels like a step out vaudeville type thing. Sure, sure. There, there are still remnants of vaudeville which preceded musical theater in some of these older shows, and I think the Guys and Dolls, the number of Guys and Dolls is a great example of that. Also, to you know, the hot box numbers that happen, they obviously happen in the story of the show, but those are, those are essentially the vaudeville, the burlesque kind of standout numbers. Those particular numbers are like a show within the show. You know, Guys and Dolls is, is different. The, the song Guys and Dolls is different because it is that type of song, but it's integrated into, you know, the story. The story, you yeah. Know. We next meet General Cartwright, who you mentioned is the leader of kind of the entire organization, who visits the specific mission that Sarah and her grandfather oversee. And it's not going well. The numbers aren't good. Yeah. (laughs) And so she kind of says that they need to close down the branch unless they get some sinners to show up to the next big revival meeting. And ding, that's the moment when Sarah realizes... If I go on this dinner date with Sky, we'll get the sinners to the revival and everything will be fine. So mm-hmm. that's the moment when she decides, okay, dinner it is. <laughs> Meanwhile, Nathan still can't find the spot for the game because he doesn't have the $1,000. And it looks like he won't get the $1,000 because Sarah's going to go on the dinner date. To make matters worse, he gets word that these notorious gangsters from Chicago, specifically one named Big Julie, are wanting to secure a spot for the game. And so things are kind of getting worse and worse there. Now let's skip, I guess, to Havana. Yeah, yeah. They. It's so funny that she's like, where are we going to go? It's like, you know, Havana. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, go to Cuba. Jet set. Yeah. 
Another I Love Lucy tie-in, Ricky Ricardo. <laughs> Who knew, man? So they go to they go to Havana, and in many of the productions of Guys and Dolls that I've seen, I'm just putting this out there. If you're going to do a production of Guys and Dolls, please get specific about why you have Havana dancers. It's it's very true. I mean, there, there is dance music built into the show. Um, yes, and. Often when I've done the show, it's been suddenly we just have like a town square full of people in frilly sleeves. um, Yes, exactly. Partnering. And uh, um, it makes most sense when they're people who'd be there, like the cafe, you know, the waiters, the waitstaff, the bartenders, the that sort of a thing. If they're doing like a floor show at the restaurant. Yeah, exactly. It could be the, you know, Havana's version of the hot box, you know, kind of a thing. Or if you are in the same way that, you know, Damon Runyon is coloring Manhattan, if you're coloring Havana as this place where all of the locals are constantly dancing, like play that up too. (laughs) The nice beat drops and and you have to move. (laughs) And you're like, lights up on Washington Heights. Um, Okay, so Miss Sarah orders a milkshake because she's a a goody-goody. And... Uh Uh, unfortunately, she doesn't realize it has Bacardi in it. So like you mentioned in <laughs> Baby, It's Cold Outside. <laughs> Say, what's in this drink? Bacardi. Bacardi, baby. Um, it is pretty, you know, if you really stop to think about it, Sky Masterson it really doesn't tell her that there's booze in this in this beverage. And she really likes it, so she mm-hmm. keeps ordering more. And he's like, well, you know what? She's going to have a great time. And the next thing you know, she's splashing her dressing. She is. Which is a lyric in If I Were a Bell. So, yeah. Which is a great song. <laughs> I honestly think that Miss Sarah is the most difficult role in the show. Mm-hmm. Because you have to be enough of a comedian to play drunk amusingly, while sure. also being uptight enough to play the other side of Sarah. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, you're singing soprano y, but then also have the opportunity and if I were a bell to really let loose like it's a sure you it's a really interesting and complex character very true very true and it's you know it's it's like you know some characters like like nicely and Benny are are painted with much broader strokes which then inspires I think Sky to have a little bit of nuance himself he feels guilty maybe even uh, just feels like somebody needs to take care of her and so he doesn't take advantage of her. In fact, he essentially gets her out of there to make sure that she's Mm -hmm. okay. And they arrive back in New York in the early, early morning, and Sarah has sobered up. And Skye decides to kind of open up to her and risk a little bit of sharing his heart. And so he sings this song, My Time of Day, which is probably the weirdest, most famous melody. (laughs) You know what I mean? And yet it's in this like very classic musical comedy. That goes into I've Never Been In Love Before, which is another standard and Mm -hmm. is the moment that they realize that through this, you know, turn of events in which they've shown each other sides of themselves that they've shown to no one else that it's led to love and a connection. Yeah. Unfortunately, that comes to a quick end when when they get to her mission, Nathan has been holding his crap game there and all of the gamblers run out. And mm-hmm. so now she thinks that Sky took her to Havana to make sure that the gamblers could then use the mission. And end of act one. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> what act- kind of doll are you anyway? 
I'm a mission doll curtain. <laughs> Sometimes you can only say those things in the theater and then you just have to <laughs> embrace it and live it up. Absolutely. All right, so act two starts and we're back to the hot box where Adelaide is performing Take Back Your Mink. She realizes that Nathan's never going to change because he's still doing the crap game instead of getting serious and marrying her, right? Well, it's also pretty brilliant that Take Back Your Mink is, um, it's a jilted lover telling off her, you know, former lover. Uh, you tried to bribe me with all these things and take them back. I don't need them anymore. You're done. Right. You know, kind of a thing. So the song that's in the club, in the show within the show, mirrors what's happening in, 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 the, in the show. <laughs> You're exactly right. And it just so happens by being angry and saying, take back your mink, you're literally taking off your clothes. <laughs> exactly. And that's, I'm gonna and that's, show that's you. brilliant. And such a multi-layered silly number. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Next up, Sarah turns to her grandpa and says, I really loved this guy and he's hurt me. And he gives this wonderful advice of, you know, the only thing I want for you more than anything is for you to be happy and follow your heart. And mm-hmm. it's a, a really, really sweet moment. It really is. It's it's such a lovely song. And, and occasionally in productions, this, you know, it gets cut, which I, I really against. I really love this moment. And it really, I think, helps with Sarah's arc. Um, you know, she has the support of her grandfather, yeah. who obviously she, she loves and, and, and looks up to. And in the situation that they're in, in this morality organization, it's like maybe things aren't as cut and dried as, you know, you might be led to believe mm-hmm. that, yeah, if this if this is the right person for you, then it's the right person for you. If, if this person makes you happy, then then go for it. That's really sweet. It's it's moments like that where you're like, oh, yeah, they may have been trying to take a, a more serious approach to this to this musical. And um yeah. It seems like it might be something out of the Joe Swirling era Incarnation. of the, the show. Yeah. Then we head down to the sewer because since Nathan Detroit, once again, has no money, can't hold his crapshoot anywhere else, they have decided to go to the sewer. And we have yeah, this... Yes, the pivotal scene where Nicely Nicely comes to the hot box to give the message to Sky that, yeah, that, that, the, uh, that the game's going on. Award-winning moment. <laughs> <laughs> This gives way to an act to Dream Ballet, essentially, which is the crapshooters yeah. dance. And uh, all of the men get to perform this gambling ballet, which is really exciting and fun. Uh, it's also very long and then gives way to one of the longest scenes, I believe, in a musical, <laughs> hmm. uh, which is the this whole gambling scene in the sewer with Big Julie, the Chicago guy, and all of the other um, gamblers and hooligans. Now, Big Julie really wants to win, but he's losing. So the the crap game has been going on for hours and hours, and Big Julie won't let it stop, right? Yeah, he's he's a sore loser. Doesn't want to lose. Not going to lose. And he's an imposing figure, so he's, you know, everyone's scared of this guy. Make way for Nicely Nicely and Sky Masterson, who show up. And Sky kind of takes over. Like, everybody respects him. Yeah. He gives Nathan $1,000 because he's really sad about Sarah. And Yeah, he, he, he essentially lies to, to, I mean, he did take the, the doll to, you know, to dinner, but he gives him 1000 bucks. Technically, he won the bet, but in his heart, he doesn't feel like he won, so he gives back the money. Right. 
And then how does he get Big Julie to, like, shut it down? Well, I think that the ma- the money gets gambled away because of Big Julie. And that's when Skye says, okay, I'm going to roll you all for your souls. Oh, right, right, right. This is, like, his last-ditch effort to maybe get Sarah. Yeah, so it's like he needs to get... to roll against their souls. So everyone puts up a marker, you know, which is, you know, an IOU uh, for their souls, you know, basically saying they'll promise to go to this meeting if they lose. And if he loses, then he has to pay them each $1,000. Yeah. So he, this is, this is high stakes game. Thousand bucks in 1950, you know. That's, yeah. Times however many are there. That's pretty crazy. Depending on how, how big your cast is. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Then that gives way to Luck Be a Lady. Oh my gosh, another song, which I first heard because Barbara Streisand recorded it and my mom had that cassette tape. (laughs) Cassette tape. He tosses the dice and he wins. So the gamblers all have to go to the mission. On the way, Nathan runs into Adelaide and she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm sorry, baby. I have to go to attend a prayer meeting. And she's like, why (laughs) won't you stop lying? (laughs) I know. Finally, when he's telling the truth. And they have this great number called Sue Me. Now, this is the only moment in the whole show when Nathan Detroit sings because the original guy, Sam Levine, couldn't sing. Right. But he has this really great duet with Adelaide. Once again, the contradictions of these characters. So Sue Me, I love you. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. But what's funny about the singing thing is that, like, when the movie was made, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra wanted to play Sky Masterson, but once they got Brando... They offered uh, Nathan Detroit to Sinatra, who, of course, you know, is known for his voice. Yeah. So they then they wrote extra material for him to sing in the movie. So what's that song? Adelaide, I think. Mm-hmm. Adelaide, ever love an Adelaide. Um, but yeah, it definitely wasn't written as a singing role originally. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting film. There are some things that I'm really glad are on film. And then other sure. things I'm like, wow, totally missed the boat. Yeah, well, I mean, some of the leads that did make it to the movie, you know, like Vivian Blaine and exactly. Stubby K, which is always nice to see theater folk get represented on, on in the film version. Right. So, yeah. So now we're at the mission, and much to Sarah's surprise, here comes all of these gamblers, and the place is full. General Cartwright is thrilled to see so many sinners coming to, to see the light, and she asks them to testify of their sins— this is the moment where all these guys have to at least put on a decent face at this mission meeting to follow through on Sky's marker with with Miss Sarah. So yeah, it becomes the situation where everyone is like putting on a good face, basically pretending to be you know penitent, and right. uh, it eventually goes down to the line to nicely, nicely song cue, you know, sort of a thing. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, this character talk, you know, makes up a dream that he gets everyone all whipped up into a frenzy. Uh, which is so cool that a secondary character like this gets the 11 o'clock number. Yeah, yeah. It, it is It is pretty wild. And it's a big well, showstopper. Sure. And at, at the time, you know, a, a character actor like Stubby K was a star of the theater, you know, so it's like right. a, a be- beloved character played by a beloved character actor gets a gets this moment and then mm. you know thanks to thanks to stubby you know lots of character men have gotten to have <laughs> have that moment on That's stage so, great. So. so then after the number the police officer shows up and threatens to arrest everybody because of the crap game in the mission and uh-huh. uh however sarah sticks up for them all and then after 
the police officer leaves, Nathan actually does confess <laughs> to his sins that the crap game was there. And as he's talking to Sarah, he says the reason that I had to hold it here was because I had this bet against Sky about taking Sarah to Havana. But yeah, um, but, yeah. Nathan said that he won the bet because the guy could not take the doll. Exactly. Um, so yeah. So basically, she finds out that Sky was on the up and up. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah. was trying to protect her, you know, her reputation and everything. Right. Which now has thrown her even deeper into the, oh, like, I really want to be with him. And now is this, it, it's interesting because Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat is the 11 o'clock number. And yet, right after this whole scene into Marry the Man I Today, know. almost feels like an 11 o'clock scene. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Mar- yeah. And it's essentially these two women who have, Obviously, each of them have known what they've wanted. They've expressed that in I'll Know and in Adelaide's Lament, mm-hmm. you know, and now they're kind of coming together. And and it, it's also, it, again, of its era. It's like all of the allusions, all the allegory that they use to talk about holding a man and keeping a man and stuff is all stuff about like dresses and grocery shopping and mm-hmm. things that women were meant to be doing at the time. For you know? sure. So, um, but still, it's like they end up, you know, getting what they want. The song is definitely a play on what we do when we're like, uh, you know, maybe they'll change after we get married. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So you see how badly they want to be with the person that they love. All the meanwhile, we as an audience member know exactly what that's like. Sure. So after that great number is the finale. and in- Yeah, it's, it's like the final scene when... Um... You know, when when you re- realize that Nathan Detroit has taken on a respectable job at the newsstand. Out comes Adelaide from a really fast costume change in uh, <laughs> in her wedding dress and is like, Nathan, you're late. We're, we're getting married. And he's like, I'm coming, I'm coming. He comes to her and right then out comes the mission band doing their... 18th cross of... So of follow, follow the, the fold. fold. Yes. But playing the drum is none other than Mr. Sky Masterson. Yes. So we see these two couples, and it seems like the women have won. Yeah. But, you know, there's that, there's that little wink and a nudge at the end, too, because, you know, they're, they, they still talk in, in gambler speak, you know, the guys at the end. Oh, so, sure. You know, it's a happy ending, but I wonder if these guys are going to be sneaking out to be shooting some craps. Of course, of course. <laughs> Damon Runyon. It's an adorable show, and like I said, I think it's forever young. Yeah, yeah, it's classic. It, again, like it's like Broadway comfort food, you know, yeah. for those who have grown up with, with those cast albums and and you know that sort of thing. And sometimes you have to force feed yourself a little bit because I haven't listened to the cast album of Guys and Dolls for quite some time, if I'm being completely sure. honest. But then, yeah. because I had an excuse to do so in preparing for this episode, I turn it on and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is great. Oh, yeah. And just little reminders. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think it's really important to remind ourselves how great some of these shows are. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a show that's kept on giving <laughs> yeah. giving over the years. Yeah. So that's that's Guys and Dolls. Huzzah! Ta-da! Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my gosh. This is great. As always, if you have any recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at amusicalpodcast for more great content. Hey, Squigs, how do we follow you? 
Uh, I am on, on Instagram at Squigs Robertson, S-Q-U-I-G-S Robertson. Uh, same on Twitter. And on Facebook, I'm Squigs Knows His Lines. Everybody check out his incredible work. And, oh, you know what? While you're at it, go to our T Public store for a musical theater podcast where we have some pretty great designs, too, all celebrating some of our favorite moments from episodes past and present. Nice. To all of you out there, you know what? Go force yourself to listen to something old, and maybe you'll find, <laughs> yeah. and maybe you'll find that it's actually something new. Have a great day, everybody. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.